Good morning, everybody. Great to see you here today. As you've already heard, today we're kicking off a a brand new message series, and this is the title, You're Not Jesus. You're Not Jesus. Maybe we could all say it together. You're Not Jesus. Now, this should seem apparent to all of us. I mean, I probably shouldn't even need to to do a sermon series for three weeks on such, such an obvious title. I mean, I want you to just invite you for just a second just to look at the person next to you, look deep into their eyes, okay? It's awkward if you don't know them. And they're just going to nod and just affirm what we already know. You're not Jesus, okay? You look great today. Thanks for being here. Uh, but, but you're not him. You're not him. Now, you might be thinking to yourself as we kind of kick things off, you might be thinking, aren't, aren't we supposed to be like Jesus? And the answer to that is... Yes, yes, we're supposed to be like Jesus. We're supposed to follow Him. He invites us to follow Him. He invites us to be like Him, to love like Him, to serve, to give like Him, even to sacrifice our lives for the kingdom and for others, just like Him. We're to be transformed into His image and into His likeness. We are to to look to Him, the author and perfecter of our faith. All of that is true. We're supposed to be like Him, transformed by His Spirit to be. But being like Jesus does not mean that you are Him. Now, You think, what's the difference? Well, let me explain with a really simple example. I could invite you today to be like me. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought too. Who would want to be like me, right? Uh, I could invite you to be like me, to have my personality, to be a red, to be, uh, you know, all the different descriptors you could give about me and my personality and all stuff. I can invite you to be like me, but you wouldn't be me, correct? I could invite you to lead like I do. Strong visionary leader, sometimes gets so caught up in details that I forget about people working on it. I could invite you to lead the way I do, but you would not be the lead pastor of Pathway Church, right? Because that's a specific responsibility that, at least for now, belongs on my shoulders. I could invite you to parent like me, and since my kids are in the front row, I won't comment on how I parent, because they will correct me, but I can invite you to parent like me, but that would never make you the father to my four children. The point of this is that there are specific responsibilities and weights that land upon the shoulders of specific individuals, and this is also true about Jesus. Even though we're to be like him, transformed into his image, to follow him, it doesn't mean we're him, and there are certain responsibilities that he has that we don't carry. Um, I think we don't do this well in the church, which is why if you were to walk up to somebody on the street and to ask them what they think about what would describe a Christian, anybody want to shout out an answer what you think they might say? I can't hear anybody. <laughs> I hear That's what I'm hearing. Somebody shout something out. Hypocrite. That's a good word. How many, how many people have heard hypocrite before? Yeah. I mean, people think about it. People will often say that Christians are judgmental. Right? Christians are self-righteous, looking down their bony little religious noses, telling everybody how they should live, what they should do, how they should handle their money, how they should treat people. And then, of course, they're hypocrites because they don't actually do the same stuff themselves. So people would think of Christians in some of these negative lights, which is very sad. And by the way, I would love to see us change some of the way that our community views those within the church, of course. That's, that's the goal. But then if you ask those same people what they think about Jesus, the answer is going to be much softer, isn't it? People would say things like, well, you know, I don't believe Jesus is whatever, but he was loving and he sacrificed himself and he cared and treated everyone with respect. And you go, there's this gap between, between what people think about Christians who are supposed to be followers and like Jesus. There's this gap between what people think about Christians and what people think about Jesus. And the question I want to ask is this, why is there often a gap between what people think of Jesus and his church? 
There's two answers that I think of immediately. The first is that, first of all, uh, we're all in process. If you're new to church, new to faith, you need to understand that the people in this room are not Jesus, and we're working on it, and we all have lots to work on, uh, and we're not there yet, so we mess up a lot, and we hurt each other a lot, and we don't do things perfectly. That's one reason, but the other reason is what I want to talk about for the next three weeks. We overstep. Sometimes we take upon our shoulders responsibilities that belong to Jesus, and not to us, not to his church. And when we do that, by the way, we cause great damage. If I were to invite those of you who grew up in church, who have been hurt in church, and if you've been in church for more than a week, you've been hurt in church, I mean, that's just the reality. I mean, somebody, well-meaning, is going to say something, do something that's going to hurt you. And if you've been in church and you've been hurt by the church, chances are someone trying to follow Jesus has overstepped and, and gone somewhere they shouldn't, taking on the responsibility of Jesus. We all know we're not him, but sometimes, sometimes we try to act like we are. So, let's talk about three responsibilities that belong to Jesus and not to us. Here's the first one. This is what we're going to talk about today. He's the judge. Jesus is the one that gets to render the final verdict on good and evil, right, wrong, judge everyone's actions, motives. He's that person. Guess what? Not you, not me. That's really important to know. Here's the second thing. We're going to talk about this next week. He's in control. So if you, if you quote-unquote um, know somebody with control issues, next week would be a great week to invite them to come to church to hear that message. And then you're going to discover that God wants to change your heart and it'll all backfire on you. But I encourage you to come anyways, okay? He's in control. That's what we're going to learn about next week. And sometimes it's so hard. Man, as a parent, it's hard not to try to control your kids and shape their destiny He's in control. I'm not. You're not. Here's what we're going to talk about in the final week. We're going to talk about how he is the Savior. Sometimes we feel like we have to take on the weight of his Saviorship. And we have to fix everybody and help everybody. I'm up here today preaching. And I have the task of opening up God's Word and trying to tell you what he thinks so that you can be transformed and changed. That's a lot of pressure on the preacher. And I have to remember that he's the Savior. I'm going to share some things that I believe are true, that are straight out of the Bible, and I, and I hope that they help you. But in the end, I have to trust that it is God who's going to change your heart. I'm literally the conduit through which he's going to work in your life. And so there's two things you'll feel as we walk through these three weeks. The first thing that you'll feel is what I call reproof. I'm going to say some things, and you're going to hear some things that should just kind of stab you in the heart. You'll be like, ooh, wow, I'm more judgmental than I thought. Ooh, wow, I really do have control issues I didn't even recognize. Ooh, and you're going to feel that. You're going to feel like, oh man, I need to change because I'm overstepping. I'm trying to be Jesus. I'm acting like I'm Jesus. So that's going to hurt a bit, so that's okay. Um, The second thing is you're going to feel some relief, some relief, because here's what happens. When we stop trying to be the judge, when we stop trying to control everything, and when we stop trying to be the savior of the world, there's this weight that comes off our shoulders. When we realize that it's not our burden to bear, that we don't have to save our children, save our spouse, save our friends, control everything around us. We don't have to judge everyone that that these weights and responsibilities land on the shoulders of Jesus and he can handle it. And there's just like this relief. It's this stress that comes off when we just can trust our Savior. Isn't that good? So you're going to feel some correction and you're also going to feel some relief as we we head through this this message series. So Jesus is the judge. This is what I want to focus on today. And to kick things off, I want to turn to The words of James. James is Jesus' younger brother. After Jesus ascends into heaven and is resurrected, his younger brother James would write to the church and he says this, um, 
Got to go back a verse, I think. Oh no, this is it. Do not speak evil against another brothers. This is what James says. Don't speak evil against another. James is like, I want you all to be very careful how you talk about the people in this room, the people in your family. Who thinks we need to hear that reminder? I do. We need to be very careful how we speak about our brothers and sisters. He says, because the one who speaks against a brother or judges a brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. And he continues, and he says, if you judge the law, you're not a doer of the law, but a judge. Here's what James is saying. A judge is somebody who exercises authority over somebody else. If you go into a courtroom and you stand before a judge, they decide your fate. They look at your situation and they go, guilty, not guilty. And they, they, they take authority out of your hands and take it into their hands. They take a place over you. And James says, be careful because when you t- speak evil of other people, when you judge them with your mouth, you're actually taking a position above your brother or sister. And he says, you take the place of a judge. And then he goes on to say this. He says, there is only, how many? One lawgiver and one judge who is able to save and to destroy. And then he finishes with this. Who are you to judge your neighbor? This is going to come back. Who are you? I want you to turn to the person and say, who do you think you are? (laughs) It feels so good, doesn't it? Come on, man. Who do you think you are? Who are you to judge your neighbor? Many of you know this. If you ever go to a courtroom, there's a seat. And that seat is the seat in which sits the judge. Now, I can tell you this for certain, that you, just give me a second to suit up here, nothing better than a good costume in a sermon. When you go to court, you would never ever dare to walk up onto the judge's seat and to sit down and have the nerve to render a verdict. Because you're not the judge. Guilty. So fun. <laughs> we do it all the time, right? Guilty. We just love to just render our verdicts. But we would never, ever, ever sit in the seat of a judge and render a verdict. But that's exactly what James says we do when we speak evil of one another. We're taking a seat in a chair that is not ours. And, and here's the warning. This, if you take nothing else from this Sunday, I want you to take this warning. Be careful you're not sitting in Jesus' seat. There is one final judge, and his name is Jesus. And one day, as you're going to hear, we're all going to stand before him. And on that day, he will render a verdict about us. And so we ought to be very careful about sliding into his seat. How many of you have seen the movie Cars? Yeah, there's this scene in Cars where he gets, he gets arrested, right? Uh, what's it, Lightning McQueen gets arrested. He's running away from the cop and he runs out of gas. And he gets arrested and he gets brought into court and he doesn't have a lawyer. And so Tomater's like, I'll do it, Sheriff! And he runs up and he becomes his counsel, right? And I think that way too often as Christians, we are so like, I'll do it! And we want to sit and judge other people for their actions, their behaviors, what they did to us, what they did to somebody else. We are so quick to rush to judgment. James is like, be careful. You're not sitting in Jesus' seat. And here's why. Because he's the judge. Let's say it all together. You are not. He's the judge. You are not. Now, I wish today I could quote Matthew 7, 1, which we're going to look at later which says, judge not. Which, by the way, is only the first two words of a whole section on judging. And, and, you know, people love to take those words, judge not. Just don't judge. 
You don't judge me, I won't judge you. Nobody judges anything, we won't be judgy, and the whole world will be beautiful. No, it wouldn't. What we're going to learn today is there's actually a place for judgment and a right way to judge. And if all we said was don't judge and let's all go home, we wouldn't be any better for it. The truth of the matter is that in the New Testament, we find statements like this. Jesus says in John 7, 24, do not judge by appearances. So don't, don't judge by external things, but judge with right judgment. Jesus says you'll know them by their fruit. What's that? You have to discern. You have to judge. So we, we have to judge. He says this, uh, Paul says this to the Corinthians, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? He says, people who are Christians have no business judging people outside who don't even believe in Jesus. Leave them alone. Let them do whatever they want. He says, should we not judge those inside the church? Are those not the people you should judge? You go, wait a minute. That opens the door for all kinds of craziness, doesn't it? The point is, is that we have to judge. So the question is, how do we judge aright? So the truth of the matter is, that there is a great throne where Jesus sits to render final judgment. And there are times in our lives when we're actually going to have to sit in judgment of others. We ought to be really careful when and how we do that. You with me? The, the idea is this, that when we judge others, we must always remember that we are judging them under the great judge. And our judgments will one day stand before him. So what I want to do today is I actually want to share with you some guidelines for passing judgment. This is actually way more helpful than just saying, don't judge anybody. I'm going to share with you some guidelines for how you can judge. Because the bottom line is, if you are in authority over anybody, you're going to have to pass judgment. If you're a parent, you're going to have to render some verdicts. You're going to have to take your parental authority seriously and be like, you didn't come home when you were supposed to. Guilty. Phone goes in a box for a week or a month. No. Okay. If you're in a marriage, you're going, to have to, you're going to have to call things out in each other. If you, if you have employees that work under you, you might have to fire somebody. Do you understand what I'm saying? We do have to pass judgment all the time. We have to pick who we're going to hang out with. We have to pick who we're going to listen to and believe. All of these things are discernment and judgment issues. So what I want to talk about is some guidelines for how to pass judgment properly, according to the scriptures. Is this helpful? You ready? Okay, here's where we go. The first thing, and by the way, you've got these little cards. If you've got them on the way in, it's a little note card, and it's got the three steps. And the reason why I want you to have a note card is so you can like fill in some blanks, put some notes, jam it in your Bible, and the next time you want to judge somebody, just pull it out and just follow these three steps. I guarantee you, it, you will avoid all kinds of hurt, heartache, and damage to yourself and others if you just follow these three steps. So let's go through them together. First one, jurisdiction. First question you need to ask before you judge anyone, is this mine to judge? Do I have jurisdiction? Simple question. If you're in a grocery store, little kids being a brat, noisy, obnoxious, is it your jurisdiction to stop that child and fix the problem? What if you're the parent? Yeah. What if you're the person that brought the kid to the store? Yeah. Uh, if, you're, uh, if you're sweeping the floor, maybe not. But if you're the store manager, that might be your jurisdiction to deal with that if it's bothering other customers. So all the time, we have to constantly be asking ourselves, is, is this my jurisdiction? Am, am I supposed to address this. Is this my responsibility? Do I have authority here? And that's a really, really important question because if we don't have authority, what are we doing? We're overstepping into a place that we should not be. So the first question is a question of jurisdiction. Is this mine? In Romans 14, Paul says this. Here, like, this is exactly what James said. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? He's like, this is again, brother to brother, sister to sister. 
Who do you think you are taking the place of authority to judge someone else who is a servant of the Lord? Imagine if I came into your place of business, wherever you work, and I started telling everybody what to do. You go over there and you work there. Some of you know me well. You're like, you'd probably do that. <laughs> but no, if I came into your workplace, you're fired and you get a raise and someone would be like, who are you? You don't have the authority. And how often do we take it upon ourselves to judge and criticize other people? We take an authority that is not ours. He continues, it is before his or her own master that they stand or fall. And he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Man, so many times, I think Christians, we we come to God and we're like, God, don't you see what they're doing? And God's like, yeah, I see exactly what they're doing. But I actually see what you're doing. And your attitude is worse than their action. Let's work on this. Here's the truth. One day, you and I will be judged. One day. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians 5. Paul writes this. For we must, this is every single person listening to me today, even if you don't believe in Jesus, this is true. One day we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This is terrifying. It's called the great white throne judgment. Imagine there's this day when Jesus will sit on the great white throne and each of us will come before him. And guess what? You won't be standing there with your friends. Your spouse won't be there. Your money won't be there. It'll be you. And you won't be sitting on his lap, snuggling. You'll be standing before the judge. And you'll give an account, and I'll give an account. Not only for what we did, but for how we wielded this thing. How we judged other people. He's going to like tell me about that. And we, each of us, will stand before him. It's a terrifying, terrifying thought that one day each and every one of us will stand before the judge. And he will render a verdict about us. The second thing that we're going to talk about here is once you've established that, yes, this is my jurisdiction, and by the way, I think 70 or 80% of the judgments, I'm going to take this off because I feel like, I feel judgy. I feel judgy. I'm going to take that off. I think that 80% of the time when we're judging other people's actions, motives, behaviors, we don't even have jurisdiction. So we could just stop right there. 80% of the mess would get stopped if we just stopped here at number one. But there are times when it is within your jurisdiction. As I said, if you're in authority over somebody and you're responsible for them, then we have to move to step two. If someone has offended or sinned against you, you have to move to step two. And it is this, due process. Do I have all the information? How many of you have seen the show Judge Judy? It's awesome. I love Judge Judy. She just doesn't, she doesn't mess around with anything. Can you imagine if you were watching the court scene and they come in before Judge Judy and she's sitting there in her chair and the plaintiff comes and says, that person stole $1,000 from me. And she just looks and goes, guilty. Pay the $1,000. Now, wouldn't you as someone on looking, looking on go, that's unjust. Why? Because there was no due process. There was no cross-examination. There was no evidence shown. Just a, a verdict was rendered. And all of us know that that's unjust, right? I hope you know that's unjust. Here's the crazy thing. Do you know how many times we get one piece of information about somebody and we render a verdict on them based on one Facebook post, one Instagram message, one offhanded comment, and we assume bad intentions, bad motives, and we render a verdict without doing any due process? Man, I've never seen a time, like the last three years through the pandemic, man, I saw some things that were really bad. (laughs) I'll just be honest with you. 
like watching the landscape of social media, like I get it, like people who don't believe that there's a great judge that we'll all stand before, they just say and do whatever they want. But I saw Christians, not the people in this room, not Pathway Christians, but other church Christians, <laughs> posting and saying things that I thought, oh my goodness, like so quick to render a verdict about somebody. Oh, you posted something in favor of the trucker convoy, or in favor of vaccination, or in favor of the world economic, whatever the thing is. No conversation, no backstory, no anything, no, no questions, just a verdict. And so I hope, that, I hope we all feel that a little bit. Like, how quickly do we jump to judgment without this due process? Because I guarantee you, anybody that I talked to who seemed extreme from my point of view, when I talked to them, seemed way less extreme after we had a conversation. And that's called due process. Line up the facts. Get the information. Hear the other person's story. And so this is, if you're going to judge somebody, first of all, is it yours to judge? If not, leave it alone. If you do have to render a judgment, you need to do process. You have to have all the information before you render a verdict on somebody. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So in Matthew chapter 18, and this is a passage we never talk about in church for a lot of reasons that you'll see in just a second. In Matthew 18, Jesus actually tells us how to handle conflict in the church, like amongst brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and here's what he says. He says, if your brother, or we could say sister, sins against you, now, first of all, it's really important to note that this doesn't say if your brother or sister believes something you don't like, or they played a song you didn't like, or the way they organized that event was offensive to you. That's not what it's talking about. It's like sins, sins against you. And I highlighted the against you because that means, because it wasn't just something they did wrong. You imagine if we had to, there's like four or 500 people at Pathway Church. Imagine if we tried to police everybody's sins. Oh my gosh. Like that would just be ridiculous. We don't get involved in everybody's issue, but if somebody sins against you, someone steals from you, lies to you, hurts you, uh, says something evil against you, if that happens to you, guess what? It's, it's inside your jurisdiction. You get to engage because it directly connects to you. The exception to this rule, which is again, you, the exception to this rule would be minors and other situations where people can't protect themselves, but that's, that's a whole other sermon, okay? If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him or her their fault. And if they listen to you, you'd have gained your brother or sister. So here's what Jesus says. He says, if somebody sinned against you, somebody's wronged you, you know what I want you to do? Go and talk to them. Really? You mean I don't report it to the church? You mean I don't, I don't post it on social media? No, I don't tell seven friends who love to tell their seven friends who tell their seven friends and now somebody in India knows about what I did? Like, No. Go and talk to the person. Jesus says the way to handle conflict, and if somebody sins against you, is to go and have a conversation with them. This is called due process. Find out. Because here's what I've found. I've found that often when, when you feel someone's wronged you and you talk to them about it, they are often surprised. Like, oh, what? Oh, yeah, I said that, but I meant this. Or, I'm really sorry. I totally neglected that. I should not have. And lots of people I've found when you actually confront them with something, are actually repentant and willing to listen. And, 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 and there's, there's reconciliation. And by the way, the goal of all this is to be reconciled, not to be right. Like if you're so excited about judging somebody else and proving when you have a conversation and proving that you're right, it's not going to go well. The goal should always be reconciliation, that the relationship would be right rather than you being right. That's not the point. So the goal is reconciliation. But he continues. If this person that sinned against you, you address them individually, they don't listen. Now this is, 
someone's wronged you and you've brought it up to them, you've had a conversation and they're just like, I don't care, I'm going to do whatever I want, not going to change. It says, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So now we're just expanding the circle enough so that it's not just one person's word against another, you're involving just a few other people. Now, this is a really important point, we'll throw it up, that keeping the circle small in situations like this is so important because it minimizes the potential for long-term damage. How many of you have seen a situation where someone does something wrong to you and maybe you tell 10 people to get their opinion on what you should do and then you go talk to them and find out it was a mistake and now 10 people all think terribly of that person? What an awful thing to do. And whenever we make the circle large, we do damage that is so hard to undo. And so Jesus is really saying, like, hey, be very careful. Like, start with a one-on-one conversation and then maybe bring it to one or two other people. And then he says, if the person still refuses, if we go on to the next, if he refuses to listen even to you and the other one or two people, tell it to the church. Now, I believe that what Jesus means by this is that it should go to a higher authority. So again, this is all in the context of Christian relationship. And if one person is defrauding or harming another person in the church and they've tried to address it individually and brought in a few trusted people and that still doesn't work. Maybe someone in leadership needs to know to be able to address it so it doesn't harm others. So that's the idea. And then he continues and he says, um, oh, I love this. Go back. Yeah, going public is the last step and should be limited to impact. This is really important. We could spend a whole message on this, but if somebody in our church has got some area of sin or neglect or they're harming someone, As a church, when we find out about it, we would try to address it individually and personally, and we would try to limit the scope as small as possible so we can address it. So maybe if it was harming some people here, it might be talking to that small group and addressing it in the small. We wouldn't bring up Joe on the stage and be like, Joe is a terrible sinner, and look what they've done, and tell it to 500 people who don't even know Joe. I've seen this done in church. It's terrible when it happens. It's so degrading. So we want to keep it as small as possible. You have to limit the impact. Now on the flip side... The scriptures teach that when someone is in authority, in a position of power, then they must be judged more harshly. So if I'm the one causing issues, my expectation is that the elders of our church are going to come up on this stage, hopefully this never happens, and be like, Pastor Nate did a bad boo-boo, and here's what we're going to do about it. And it would be, everyone would know, I shouldn't use boo-boo, because I mean it, you know, but everyone would know, because it would be public. So again, depending on depending on the level of your leadership and authority is the severity of the judge. Is this making sense? Anyway, we're moving on. Moving on. Here's what he says. He finally says this. If this person, okay, who's living in sin, my wife's laughing at me. I don't know why. If this person refuses to listen, even to the church, the leadership, let this person be to you as a Gentile and tax letter. Now, this passage is so badly interpreted by the church when I was growing up. Because what Christians did, like if somebody was, was, was causing division in the church and someone addressed it and then it went to the leadership and then eventually they announced this person is out of the church and they pushed them out. Maybe some of you experienced something like this. It was like, this person is the enemy. We don't talk to this person. We don't look at them. We don't ask them how they're doing. We don't pray for them. We don't love them. It's like an excuse to just be jerks. But let me ask you a question. How did Jesus treat Gentiles and tax collectors? Right? He's the one who's giving us his instruction. He loved them, he ate with them, he cared for them, he died for them. Nowhere in the New Testament are we given an excuse to treat people badly or disrespectful or an exception to not love them. Now, Jesus would not have this person who refuses to get their life corrected in his leadership team. He wouldn't send them out as one of his disciples, but he would love them and care for them. So so we don't get an excuse to be jerks. 
Isn't that good? It's so important. All right, so let's move on. We've got first jurisdiction. Is this mine to judge? That's the first question. If yes, move on to step two. Have I all the information? Have I done due process? And then thirdly, and most importantly, if you say, yes, I have all the information and this person is guilty and we've tried to address it, then the third thing is verdict. Now, here's this really important. Before you render a verdict, before you render your judgment on somebody else, it's really important that you ask this question. What measure will I use? What measure will I use? And now, as we kind of wrap things up, I want to circle back to Matthew 7, verse 1. Here's what it says. Judge not. You'll notice this is the comma, not a period. Okay? The sentence does not end. The thought is not over. Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged. He's talking about a reciprocal relationship. Here's what he says in the next passage. He says, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the, let's say it together, measure you use, it will be measured to you. So in other words, what Jesus says is, be careful before you render verdict. Even if you're right and they're guilty, the measure of your judgment is the measure that will be used on you. Another way that we could say this is this, judge others in the way that you would want others to judge you. It's the golden rule applied to judgment. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you want others to judge you? How do you want others to judge you? My guess is that you would want, if someone else was going to sit in judgment over you, you'd want them to take into account everything, wouldn't you? I would want the person to go, oh yeah, he was raised in that home. Oh yeah, he had a really stressful week. Oh yeah, he's been struggling with depression. Oh yeah, his kids are a mess. Oh yeah, there's all this stuff going on. He's in financial hardship. So when we think about ourselves, we we think about ourselves holistically and we go, oh, these are all the situations surrounding me and we judge ourselves mercifully. But when we look at other people, we don't do the same, do we? So how do you want other people to judge you? Slowly, carefully, and mercifully. Jesus says, if you have to judge someone, Make sure you do it like this. He continues, this is really good. Why do you see the speck that's in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that's in your own? Have you ever noticed it is so easy to find fault with other people? Am I the only person that, that feels this? Like, when you look at somebody else, it is so easy to see what they need to fix. If you have a job, I guarantee you, you have five things that you would do differently if you were the boss. You just look and you're like, easy peasy, we could fix this whole place. Right? Because it's so easy to see their faults and so hard to see our own. We have these massive, massive blind spots. I can see the smallest thing you're doing wrong, and I got a two by four sticking out my head. And it's crazy because I'm looking at all you people right now, and all I see is you, but there's this giant nose in the center of my face, and I don't see it. It's like a blind spot. And that's true for you. There are blind spots in your life. There are things that you don't, don't see about yourself, and everyone else sees it. It's so obvious to them. And Jesus is reminding us that, hey, We have blind spots, and it's super easy to see other people's faults, but we miss our own. He goes on to say this, how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, he says, first take the log out of your own eye. Jesus actually invites us when it comes to judgment to start with ourselves. The judgment starts with me. Can we say that together? This is important. Judgment starts with me. Imagine what would happen if every person who says they follow Jesus spent more time looking at him and asking him to examine their own heart, allow him to... Because here's the thing, when I look at Jesus and who he is and what he's done, and I look at myself, I see all kinds of stuff I need to fix, be honest. 
And there's so much stuff for me to work on over the next 20 years, I, I don't even have time to be looking around and judging you. And the more we look at Him and the more we acknowledge our own weaknesses and failures and begin to deal with the junk in our own lives, then, and only then, we even begin to position ourselves in a place where we can judge others. Here's what he says. Then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So Jesus actually says that if we can get our own heart, our own life sorted out, then we may be of some value to those around us. So the goal of all this isn't just to be blind to everyone and everything. That's the judge not out of context. The goal of this is that we would judge ourselves first, that we would judge others mercifully, slowly, and rightly, that we would, when we had to judge others, we would do it knowing that we will be under his judgment and doing it graciously and mercifully so that we can help one another. That's the goal. So in summary, if you've got your note card and you've been filling in these blanks, jurisdiction, these three, if you ask these three questions, man, it would save so much trouble for everyone. Is this mine to judge? Do I have all of the information? Am I jumping to conclusions? And lastly, what measure, even if I have the right to, and even if I'm right and you're wrong, what measure will I use? Because it will come back to me. I want to close with reading one passage of scripture that Paul writes to Titus, and then we're going to pray. And, and here's what he says. And I want you to just hang out on this for a sec. Paul says, speak evil of who? No one. Yeah, but what if they're wrong and I'm right? He's like, just keep your mouth shut. To avoid quarreling. Because how many, you know, most quarrels start with us opening up our yap. Avoid quarreling. Be gentle. That is not a phrase that usually describes the church. I hope it would be. I hope that when people run into people from Pathway, this is what describes us. Gentle. Showing perfect courtesy towards all people. Even the people who left our church? Yes. Even the people who don't agree with all our theology? Yes. Even people who sin and do all kinds of terrible? Yes. Perfect courtesy towards all people. Wow. And then here's what he says. For we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He's like, even when people are nasty, we used to be nasty too. We were far from God's grace. We have come a, a little ways out of that. But then he finishes with this. I love this. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, something changed in your story and mine. You were carrying on doing your thing and all of a sudden you experienced the goodness of God. And then it says he saved us. Not because of works done in righteousness. Not because of, you didn't earn anything. But according to what? His own mercy. Look, the only reason why you and I stand here forgiven and loved by God is because He decided to extend mercy to you and to me. Can I tell you something? If Jesus was to sit down on this chair today with His gavel and render verdicts about you and me, here's one thing I know for sure. We're all guilty. And if it wasn't for His mercy and grace, we'd be in deep, deep trouble. And we need to remember that as we enter into judgment very cautiously, very slowly, and very mercifully. Something my pastor uh, said 20 years ago, never escaped me. Pastor Brian Mahood said this. He said, if you have to err on either mercy or judgment, always err on the side of mercy. And I thought, that is such a good rule for life. If we could do that a little better. Yep, maybe sometimes people would get away with things. 
But one day when I stand before God, I would rather him say, I'm giving you mercy, Nathan, because you extended mercy to others. Who wouldn't want to hear those words? Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so we want to extend. We will have to judge. If we're responsible for anybody, we will have to sit in a seat and render a verdict, but do it slowly, cautiously, due diligence, all of it. And so today I want to close and I want to pray together. I told you there'd be a little bit of ouch and a little bit of relief. So hopefully you felt some relief in there somewhere. But we're going to pray and just ask God to, uh, to just settle this in our spirit as we go. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for these words and this message. Lord, we acknowledge today you are the great judge. We are not. And Lord, when we have to stand in judgment over others, we want to do so cautiously, mercifully, slowly, with all the facts and information. And God, I pray that we as a church could be the kind of church that when people see us, they see something of you. Because we truly do want to follow you, live for you, and love like you. But Lord, we acknowledge that so many times we overstep and we want to sit in your chair and render quick judgments on others because it's easy. But God, I pray that you would help us to see that apart from your grace and mercy, we ourselves are guilty and under judgment. And so God, help us to take the mercy and the grace and the forgiveness you've given us and to share it with those around us and our world. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. Thanks, everyone. I invite Andrew to come up and close us out.